2: very noisy nuthatch perhaps two noisy nuthatches in an alder tree here by a little stream and uh, they are chatting to each other about things as they move up and down the tree trunk and onto the edge of branches looking for food this may be the beginning of a sort of courtship ritual as it's mid-January and a lot of birds are already thinking about spring Hello and welcome to The podcast, the Nature and Countryside podcast from BBC Country Farm magazine. My name is Fergus Collins and I'm the host of The podcast. I'd love to welcome you to season 11 of our adventures in the countryside. We're calling this one Voices of the Countryside, where we meet a range of interesting rural folk, but also listen out for the sounds of the wild, rather like these nuthatches. So this is episode two where we're going to hear about a different way of voicing the landscape, its people and its wildlife, through music. One stunning morning recently, very light today actually, clear and beautiful, but chilly, I headed over to the Cotswolds to meet Jeremy Pound of BBC Music Magazine for a lovely walk in his native hills. An area, it seems, thick on the ground with composers who loved walking in the countryside and made music about what they experienced when they were there. Jeremy's words are a brilliant introduction to how music can evoke nature, landscape, countryside, and the the mood of the outdoors. You can find all of the music Jeremy mentions on the streaming service Spotify. Just open up Spotify and search for BBC Countryfile magazine. For now, though, let me transport you to the musical world of the Cotswolds. Jeremy, it's a beautiful, beautiful crisp, the crispest of January mornings. It's
1: lovely. Where are you taking me today? Right, well, we're going, we're in the south side of Cheltenham at the moment. And uh, my my area of town called Charlton Kings. And we're skirting, we're currently skirting the bottom of Leckhampton Hill, which is a hill which runs to the south of Cheltenham. And we're gonna go up Leckhampton Hill and we're going to go along the top of Leckhampton Hill from which you have fantastic views of not just Cheltenham but Gloucestershire beyond and then over towards the Malverns and Worcestershire
2: but well I mean what a day for it it's like carved out of crystal today so uh, we're walking the ground is frozen solid I bet it's quite boggy here normally is it
1: yes this is normally a quagmire along here um well as you can see so actually having rock hard frost is actually a rather good thing because otherwise we'd normally be up to our ankles in mud by this stage well
2: quite grateful. It must be about minus two at the moment, I would say, but in my 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 furgo, furgometer. <laughs> um, and, well, we're we obviously here, we're going to look at whatever we find along the way. There's a great tit singing up here. Kind of lovely first sign of spring, but
1: we're talking about other music inspired by the countryside, inspired by surroundings like this. We are indeed. First of all, though, you're going to have to tell me what told you that that was a great tit you could hear there.
2: Um good question. Just years of listening to them. Well, they're, they're, this is a dunnock here, the sort of squeaky wheel. There's a chaffinches. Let's see that here, that sort of squeaky, that's a dunnock. Um, just watching, listening, ticking them off over many, many... I'm 50 now, so I've probably been I've probably been learning birdsong for 30 years.
1: So you and me both, I'm also 50. Oh, well. And for me, I guess that my classical music is your bird song because people, yeah. uh, I can hear a piece of music on the radio and my son will say, who's that dad? And I'll say, oh, that's Vaughan Williams or that, b- that's Bax. He says, how do you know that? And I say, well, you just, you just learn from years' worth of listening, as you say. So
2: I would trade some of my bird knowledge for some of your music knowledge just because that is...
1: But that is the same with me and bird song, you see, because uh. I come on these walks regularly, I hear the birds and I think, what is that? And I never know. Um, i 'd love to have that expert here i 'll do you a deal then today
2: we 're going to trade bird song for musical knowledge so we 're gently climbing and two fifty year old men losing <laughs> struggling for breath but uh, this is an amazing scene. look at the frost this is the thickest frost i 've seen for years yeah you can really hear under our feet the crunch of frost and we 're on a sort of scrubby open very interesting looking grassland which looks perfect for all sorts of wildlife here.
1: It is and what we are walking along here actually at the moment is what has been called the Gustav Holst Way ah. it's just a short stretch of it Um, there's Gustav Holst Way runs from Cranham just south of Cheltenham to um, Wick Christington, which is about 17-18 miles east of here um, and actually the whole walk itself is about 35 miles long and it's sort of it's, it's not where Holst himself would have walked. It's named after him because he's the local famous composer around here. But he was uh, an ardent walker. And I suspect that he may well have walked along this patch at some point. So you can imagine, go back a century, you can imagine him trooping along here yeah. admiring
2: the views. Can you tell me a bit about it? I don't know much about
1: him. His, his um, father was of Swedish stock, actually, not German. And when he was born, he was actually Gustav von Holst. Come the beginning of the 20th century when our when British appetites for Germans kind of faded a little, <laughs> put it put it that way. Yeah. <laughs> um he dropped the von because it was proving difficult. Um, he was born in Cheltenham in 1874. He lived in Cheltenham for about the first 20 years of his life, so very much a Cotswold boy. And then he moved to to Essex and then London. He taught for in London for most of the rest of his life, but he always retained a a real affection for this part of the world. In his 50s, there's this famous tale where I'm um, here writing a piece of music called Egdon Heath, which is based on the work by Thomas Hardy. Oh yeah, okay, well, yes, I know. yes, Egdon Heath itself doesn't actually exist. It's a it's a sort of generic Heath, Egdon Heath, yeah. based on British southern landscape. And while um, while Holster was writing this piece of music based on that, he went down to visit Thomas Hardy. Who lived in Dorchester. Now Dorchester is around I think it's about 90-100 miles from here in Cheltenham and rather than get the train or anything like that, despite the fact that cars were around in that time, Holst walked it Did he? <laughs> all the way from Cheltenham to Dorchester just to visit Thomas Hardy. Why? It was just because he loved walking so He much. loved walking. Probably go this way, okay, probably yes, less, so. a little less muddy. Initially he walked everywhere because he was skint. In his 50s Although I don't think he was ever rich, I do think he actually really enjoyed just going out and enjoying the countryside on long walks. Did the countryside inspire his composing? Quite composing? a lot, yes. Um, I shall stop there. I We're going to clamber long. over a stile.
2: We'll <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, this
1: yeah, is to the ice here.
2: This is Jeremy Pound of BBC Music Magazine clambering
1: over a stile. And he was, he was inspired not just by the countryside, he was also inspired by folk music as well, and the two were very much intertwined at the time. So there was this big fad, and this was partly inspired by Vaughan Williams, who was his, ba- his, his great mate. And Vaughan Williams would go out round the countryside, listening to local folk songs, country folk songs, either recording them or writing them down, and then incorporating them into his own music. Um, and he was really into promoting folk song. And that appears in some of Holst's music, less so than in Vaughan Williams's. But yes, there's. And there's one or two. There's Holst in one or two of his works, it's probably one of his less famous works, kind of evokes the British countryside. He wrote a Cotswold Symphony, for instance, which is sort of. Oh, right, right, okay. Celebrating so his own patch of the world, that sort of thing. How would you describe Holst's sort of. pastoral? His pastoral style? Yeah. Oh, gosh, now that really is difficult. I um, mean, it's very tuneful. Yeah. Is the pastoral style because they say it has, um, it has a lot of the time it has folk at its roots. You won't hear any cases of atonalism, as you call it, which is music which you can't really work out what key it's going on and where it is going. Oh, okay, yes, there's nothing wrong with atonalism, I love it, but it's not part of the pastoral style. Um, no, quite jarring, maybe, if you just want sweeping, sets of a sweeping landscape. Or... And I think that is it's very hard to define, but a lot of pastoralism is as you just that very phrase, sweeping landscapes. It's sweeping long melodies, nothing really kind of acerbic, nothing majorly percussive. It's that sort of, you can imagine yourself looking out over a large, a large patch of land. Yeah. In my opinion, Holst was one of the, possibly the most underrated British composer there has been. Um, he was writing things over a hundred years ago. Which um, were extremely forward looking. I mean, Mars from the Planets, for instance, no one had ever written anything like that before. Try and pick out the tunes in Mars, for instance, there are none. It is very, it actually, is quite similar to um, Stravinsky's Rite of Spring, which was a contemporary work of it. Yeah. Um, and it is all about rhythm and little kind of little motifs here and there, but no real tune. You try and whistle Mars, you can't. Yeah, okay. And that was quite groundbreaking. And then there's other pieces like his, he wrote this piece called Benny Mora, which is where he went on a walking holiday to Algeria in, I think it's about 1908. Um, and he potted around the streets of Algiers and then out into the desert. And he heard a flute player on a corner and he's playing this tune. And now Holst just took this tune and kind of repeated it and repeated it and repeated it in this last movement of this piece called Benny Mora. And today, we would know this as being what's called minimalism. This idea of just this kind of repetitive theme coming back and back and back and back. Now, the minimalists didn't come round until the likes of... Robin's desperate to speech. Here. Oh, sorry. <laughs>
2: <laughs> no, no, it's, it's, it's not a minimalist. Robin. Minimalist
1: Robin. Yeah, um, yeah and so... 50 years later, you had this minimalism phase where the likes of Steve Reich, Philip Glass, etc. But and they did the same, but actually, Holt had got there 50 years early. He was incredibly, incredibly groundbreaking, and his music at his best is just simply stunning.
2: You said he's a British composer? Yes. Is, he, is
1: that how he's considered then? A British? I mean, he's obviously got Swedish ancestry and all this. Uh... He is very much considered a british composer in fact the british have sort of adopted him as one of theirs, probably more than he'd be comfortable with because he was um he was very much a pacifist he wouldn't have been interested in anti-german sentiment obviously nor in fact was elgar Um, and elgar and holst actually both share this is that they had their music kind of adopted as great british symbols so for instance in the middle of holst's jupiter from the planets there's this famous tune which goes Uh, which we sing today as I vow to thee my My country country, and then it also got pinched for the Rugby World Cup kind of World in Union Uh, and Holst was very uncomfortable with this idea of his, his music being used in this sort of patriotic way that wasn't his bag at all but yes he is viewed as very much part of the the sort of British music establishment. Um, Elgar, he never intended for his land of hope and glory to become this great patriotic anthem either. It was just a very good tune that he wrote. And so yes, a lot of the composers we think as being these great kind of British establishment figures were actually quite pan-European.
2: Yeah, interesting, interesting. Well, before we leave Holst behind, um, what's your, if you had to recommend one piece by him, I've asked you this as we're climbing this steepest hill. That's all right. Uh, if I had to choose one piece by Holst, well, I that, that evokes perhaps evokes the best evokes landscape, countryside. I
1: think I'm going to go back to Egdon Heath. Egdon Heath. Yeah. Okay. It's what it is. It's, be... it's not um, it's not the easiest listening actually. If you are looking for the sort of some of the tunes you get elsewhere in Holst, it's it was late Holst and he could be quite experimental, but it really does conjure up a very, I think I say a very Hardy-esque atmosphere. He really had done his research. Yeah. If you read, I know. It's never easy reading either, isn't Hardy, but oh, if you read no, a, no. <laughs> read your Hardy novels, listen to Egdon Heath and you'll you'll kind of you'll see where he's coming from I reckon. Lovely. That'd be my choice. Great
2: recommendation. So we've arrived at the top of quite a steep climb there and we we thought it wise for our listeners not to <laughs> not to talk so this is yeah what's this is this, this, we've, we've kind of well it's it is a quarry a mine a sort of
1: they're they're the leckhampton lime kilns so of course there was lime quarrying here and i've I, I presume that the sign is going to tell us when they finished kind of i think about the 1930s yeah. if you look the actually if you go look down the hill which we've just come up to get to this point you'll actually notice that the path is dead straight and quite wide Uh, And that is because it's the path of the old tracks that they put down to wheel the stone down the hill.
2: The old tramways. The the old tramways, yeah. Or narrow-gauge railways. Very similar to where I live in South Wales. This sort of just hints
1: of industry...
2: What's this sort of towering over us?
1: Right, this is called the Devil's Chimney, um, and it's a bit of a a Cheltenham landmark. Whenever you see websites about Cheltenham and the area, you will always see lovely views of the town, which we're going to see in a second, looking from above here. And it's a limestone stack. It is, of course, not natural. It's uh, man-made. It's a, a, a remnant of the old the old lime quarrying days. Did they just leave a remnant on its own? Clearly, is
2: yes. That what, that's very interesting. The same thing has happened near me on the hills just south of Abergavenny. It's called the Lonely Shepherd, the one where us, with us, and it's a similar
1: thing. Perched over a valley. Well, I, I, I love it. It shows how you can create a sort of local landmark in the simplest of ways. Cheltenham is full of beautiful buildings. Oh, gosh, yes. Um, but... Whenever you see photos of Cheltenham, you can guarantee that 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 will be there rather than half the building.
2: What a view. What a view, Jeremy. It's It's stunning, isn't it?
1: This is what has kept me going through a lot of the lockdown period, I will say. Coming up
2: here, we've risen from, from sort of dark wooded paths. Suddenly we've reached the crest of... Lake Hampton Hill, we're sort of the crest, there's a little... There's
1: a little bit more to go, but yeah, we're pretty much near town. And we're just... And this is the initial view, down
2: across the sort of Vale of the Seven. really. You've got kind of, um, Cheltenham before us. Malverns, you point out the Malverns?
1: Yeah, that's the Malverns directly in front of us, yeah. poking out of the... Out of the mist, actually. It's yeah. rather atmospheric. The
2: mist is fantastic. There's just a few hilltops poking out, and then there's this... I can imagine Vaughan Williams sweeping violins here. Um... In the distance, the Welsh hills and Herefordshire, and, and just the smoky mist. Very even. I mean, I drove through it this morning. It was it was proper fog then, but it's beginning to burn off with this unbelievably beautiful sunlight. It's still very special, and there are church spires, there are villages, there are hamlets, there are rolling f- cooms and vales, and it's 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 England as envisaged it by, really is by our sort of, you know, in, our, in our deep hearts I suppose
1: we'll try and ignore the sound of the M5 <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> rolling down through the middle of the Seven Valley but yes.
2: yeah so this is a view that to me
1: kind of a I can imagine Vaughan Williams sweeping violins accompanying it well yes very much he, Vaughan Williams um, was born about it must 15-20 miles south of here also in Gloucestershire, another Gloucestershire man in a village called Down Ampney um, which is kind of quite near Swindon Um, Although he he moved away from Gloucestershire fairly early in his life and spent much of his later years either in London or Surrey, in fact. But yes, he spent a lot of time exploring the countryside. There's a lovely picture, actually, of him walking with Holst in the Malverns, going out for a walking trip together. Ironically, although Vaughan Williams did conjure up a lot of the countryside in his music, and again, particularly using folk songs, as I mentioned, uh, mentioned earlier on. There's... There's a, a famous symphony of his called the Pastoral Symphony, his third symphony, which has absolutely nothing to do with the countryside at all. So it's a bit of a red herring, that one. Oh right,
2: okay. It I was, don't know it at all. So um, right, it we was. I might put it on our playlist just as a one that doesn't evoke the countryside.
1: Well, what it is all about is the title is very ironic. Oh okay. Pastor, it was.
3: Yeah.
1: Um, Vaughan Williams was um, served in the First World War as a stretcher bearer. And kind of was obviously, unsurprisingly, had very kind of clear memories, distinct memories of that. And the Pastoral Symphony is actually about the the scenery of the battlefields of World War One in northern France. These horrible mud baths, the sort of bleak, again lifeless areas, Um, and the sort of there's a very haunting moment where you hear this trumpet solo going um, you know, it's that sort of, it's almost like The Last Post. However if we are talking Vaughan Williams and pastoralism, I could go on forever about various pieces of work <laughs> Hello, Hello. Um, I think the one which I'd go for first of all was, <laughs> ironically, it was also written in, during wartime but his 5th symphony which he wrote in the 1940s and possibly his most famous of his, of his nine symphonies um, it it's almost like a longing for the countryside and better times ahead in the midst of these bleak war times. And again, you mentioned earlier on about the sort of what makes pastoral music sound pastoral. It's these it's these evocative horn calls. Mm. It's these um, these kind of long sweeping melodies. So sort of the feeling of lingering in the music. You don't feel the music is, sometimes you feel the music's not going anywhere it sort of drifts yep. and you get a lot of that in his fifth symphony but the work which i think he's most famous for which depicts the countryside is the lark ascending yes which yes. is a work for violin and orchestra which he wrote again there's a bit of a theme coming here in 1914 yeah. just as europe was heading towards war now it's actually based on a poem by george meredith who's a poet in the 19th century the piece itself is written for violin solo, um, twisting, turning violin solo, which depicts, that's basically the lark, mm-hmm. and then an orchestral background, which is the, the scenery around it, if you like. Now, although the piece itself is based on this poem, which is kind of, it's a kind of a, the poetic, poem itself is a sort of pastoral idyll, the kind of the, the lark set against its pastoral yeah. idyll, um, you can actually read quite a lot of other messages into there. So you can look at the timing of it. Um, think was was Vaughan Williams suggesting something about the onset of war because he was quite prescient with jo- Vaughan Williams because you've got to look, always pays to not look at things with hindsight here and to, mm, to kind of see how the, the war turned out to be. In 1914 Britain was pretty gung-ho about going to yes,
2: war. Yes, I remember doing the war poets and the, the early poems of the war are very much, off we go we going to have s- Yep. win glory for Britain.
1: A lot of music at the time was similar. Ravel, who was also going off to war, wrote a really kind of quite triumphant. Here we go! After all, that was in his Piano Trio of 1914. Gives a really optimistic view of it all. Yeah. Now this piece by Vaughan Williams seems to intimate that you've got this beautiful lark flying, kind of flying up, but the orchestral, um, the orchestral texture below it sounds almost like dark clouds forming. But there is this sort of ominous feeling, which you do get in the countryside. If you can imagine this beautiful bird flying about, which doesn't match what it's like today, but you can see those dark kind of storm clouds coming and you've got this lone bird against yeah, this huge, overwhelming... Yeah. Bravely singing. Bravely singing. plaintive. Yeah. yeah, it's a very sort of...
2: Oh, gosh, you've given an extra dimension to it because I, I've always listened to it as... It is a brilliant evocation of, of a lark. I mean, I've heard thousands of larks singing in my life i love listening to that in the depths of winter and imagining the larks above it's for me it's the perfect evocation of downland actually the sort of rolling sweeping hills the violins and then you get the diddle-leddle, diddle-leddle, and that sort of.
1: but i want to tap into your expertise here yeah. because what fascinates me about this work is that he, vaughan williams clearly knew the sound of the lark and i suspect larks were quite familiar in his time um, he would have gone out, he'd have listened to it, kind of Very transcribed. Very, very common. In now, if you're writing a piece, similar piece today about British birdsong, I would imagine you probably wouldn't choose the lark, because I don't know what a lark sounds like. You do, because you've gone out listening for well, them. Well,
2: we have to take you lark hunting yeah. with the team, um, because they are, you can find them, where they are still around, they're very common, but they should be all over the Cotswolds. This is perfect, arable landscape. And we were at the top of Leckhampton Hill and I could see the fields of the Cotswold Plateau behind me. That's lark country. Yeah, there's so many, so many changes to the landscape since Vaughan Williams was writing his music that things like yellow hammers, skylarks, nightingales, turtle doves, all these birds that have really influenced music I think.
1: Well Nightingale has been really often depicted in music not just by British composers but Le Rossignol um, by Stravinsky okay he's Russian but he lived most of his time a lot of his time in France this mm. is another classic example um, there's a Nightingale song in Respighi's Pines of Rome they appear all over the place.
2: That's wonderful well, we should do a Nightingale playlist actually but uh, well I was, I mean, the birds I was talking about there were sort of farmland birds which yeah. are the ones which have probably suffered most in the last hundred years. And so they would have been, as you said, they would have been really, really familiar and part of people's everyday lives, and influenced, they influenced poetry, they influenced folk song, and you know, grander classical music. But, but they've gone. A lot of these birds have gone from much of our landscape, and that's. So yeah, I wonder what
1: birds would influence people today. Probably the jackdaw and the. I was about to say <laughs> the magpie. The magpie, yeah. <laughs> Well, there is a there is a piece by Rossini called the Thieving Magpie, so the magpies haven't in, been entirely left they're out of musical. Yeah. They're not being neglected. Um, right, we're at,
2: we've reached this viewpoint, so we're looking out across the huge vale of the River Severn here. But in the distance, the Malvern Hills, and there's obviously a very strong musical association with
1: the Malverns. Which yes, Malvern's is Elgar country. Um, Elgar was born near Worcester, was brought up in Worcester. Um, and actually lived in Mulvern itself for a while. Um, he actually also moved down to London for a while and hated it. He was very much a, a country bumpkin, country boy. Yeah. Now his music, Elgar, it's he doesn't. There's not that many pieces by him which actually with explicit kind of countryside titles like the Lark Ascending or whatever. You just have to detect it within the overall sphere of his music, like the beginning of his second symphony. It sounds like someone going out for a march in the countryside. It must be that you kind of the moment you hear it, you think, Second Symphony. Okay, it's died. like it's like a lovely sunny morning. You can imagine strolling out and say, Right, I'm gonna go for a decent walk. Now he was a major league walker and cyclist as well. He used to cycle around the countryside a lot, including the Morvans. Um, and Morvans was his patch. And there was a famous quote where he wrote to his friend W. H. Reed, who was a violinist. And he said, "If one day you're walking in the Morvans and I'm gone," he said, "and you hear my my cello concerto, he said don't worry, it's only me." Only and me, that was his right. idea is that he's suggesting that even after he's dead, his ghost will be still around the Morvans. Now, the piece of music which I'd really like to bring up about him mm. and pastoralism, depicting the countryside, is strange enough. His Enigma Variations.
2: Okay, which a lot of people will. A have lot heard of,
1: of, of people will know now. This was written in the late 19th century. I think it was on the cusp of the 20th century, about 1899. Um, And it depicts every single one of the... You start with a a tune, which is the the famous enigmatic tune. What does it mean? No one knows. That's why it's called the Enigma Variations. Exactly. And then he plays around with this tune, depicting various friends. Every single one of the movements has three initials or four initials at the top, or two initials, which is the initials of a friend. Um, now some of these have got nothing to do with the countryside but there's one or two which are, are based completely on the countryside and my favourite one is one where he depicts a walk along the River Wye in, uh, okay. near, in and near Hereford and it's with, he's walking along with his mate um, an organist called George Sinclair who brings his dog Dan with him and the music is depicting the dog running into the River Wye running about and coming out again shaking himself off yeah. it's a very gentle countryside that Elgar yes. depicts a lot of the time. It's not these sort of stark killed. The Enigma Variations is one of those pieces where you get so much more out of it if you listen to it with, a, with the sleeve notes in front of you and read what his, what's going on. At all. Because Elgar was really well documented. He kept diaries. His wife kept a diary. He wrote loads and loads and letters. We know all about his friends. So when you read about them depicted in music here, it brings the whole thing to life. That's fantastic advice,
2: actually. Maybe, but you should listen to all, you say you should listen to all You've got to listen
1: to the whole of the Enigma Variations and just wallow in it and enjoy the... With the the sleeve notes. Yes.
2: Fantastic, okay.
1: While we're here at this very point, I just want to quickly give you a a geographical tour of what we can see from here. Well, I'd love that. So in terms of composers, this is an extraordinary part of the world for British music here. We've got the Morvans, which we can see directly in front of us, which is Elgar country. Now we're going to swing round to the west a bit looking towards Wales though we can't really see Gloucester from here we can see a little lump in front of us that's called Chosen Hill which is short for Church Downhill now the two composers Ivor Gurney and Herbert Howells used to go up there and they were also big walking fans. Mm-hmm. They were the same generation as Vaughan Williams and Holst. And they used to take trips up there and just sit at the top of Chosen Hill for ages, kind of talking to each other, getting inspiration.
2: From the countryside. From the as well.
1: countryside, yep. Yeah, both of them. Gurney was actually more famous for his sort of songs. Howells was, pretty early on in his career he wrote sort of these kind of quite pastoral sounding okay. chamber music and orchestral music. Oh, there's some more composers there to, yep. to,
2: to evoke the countryside.
1: Come this way look towards the south. Um, if you carried on in that direction you'd see Stroud yes. and Painswick. Gerald Finsey, the composer, another great British composer, okay, who was, okay, yes. he was really famous for depicting countryside themes including this amazingly short but beautiful piece called The Fall of the Leaf, which is an does, that does pretty much what it says on the tin mm. it's an autumnal orchestral piece and it's just this very doleful it's autumn's coming the nights are drawing in and it's got the this, fall of the leaf the fall right. of the leaf this is my next recommendation actually okay wow now Gerald Finsey actually lived he was he wasn't from round here he was from London but he moved to Painswick for two or three years because he just had this idea that he really wanted to be in the countryside and enjoy the country living. He hated it. (laughs) Like so many. Like so many. He got (laughs) bored stupid and went back to to the East. Um, But his fall of the leaf is he was brilliant at depicting the countryside. And again, songs were very much his thing. A lot of his songs have that sort of pastoral feel to them. Go further south from Painswick, we've got Stroud. We're looking right into the sun now. Which, about,
2: well, oh, hello! About, about to be. Um, I bet a, they're musical or, dogs. Or, orchestra of dogs. How
1: many of them? One, two, three, dogs? four, five, six. So, yeah. anyways, south hello. from I'm here. Hello. <laughs> south from here, we have Stroud. Now, this is briefly has nothing to do with music really, but this is where Frederick Delius yes, um, lived.
2: Frederick Delius. Yeah. He
1: actually was from Bradford. He wasn't from here, but in his early life, he was. His dad was a. Uh, um, Worked in the, I think it was in the wool trade or something like that. He was an industrialist. And he insisted that Frederick work for the family company for a while and sent him to work in Stroud. He was based in Stroud for a year or so. A big town of wool and mills. Big, and. Exactly. Great. But he moved abroad. He spent a lot of his time firstly in Norway, the States, and then eventually settled in France. But despite all that, he wrote some of the most evocative English pastoral music there is. Oh, that's Even though he had this sort of wider worldview. Wonderful. Before we go any further, actually, I've just remembered another Gloucestershire composer, and if I don't mention him... You'll be run out of town. I will. It's um, Parry, Hubert Parry. Ah, oh, yes, OK. Who was um, born um, just north of Gloucester. Um, his parents were very wealthy, owned a big country house just north of Gloucester. Now, he... Famous for a different type of, of sort of pastoral music is that he wrote Jerusalem, which, of course, set to Blake's music voting England's green and pleasant land... Um, and he was a Gloucestershire man throughout virtually the whole of his life. Um, say that he's, he was... You'll see less of the pastoral stuff in his music, um, but there is that sort of one particular instance. Oh, OK, Parry as well. A little bit of percussion coming from the,
2: the woods to the, to the east of us.
1: The yes, there's a shooting club up near Timbercombe Hill, and okay. you can hear it from miles around. You can hear it from our house. Yeah. You, know, and you get used to it. Hocking away, yes.
2: We're looking down at this a sort of very classic... Cotswoldian scene. Uh, Cheltenham, but with the hills and valleys.
1: Oh. And there's a, a dog walker. <laughs> there's a Cotswoldian song. To our right is Cleve Hill, which is kind of... This one here? Yeah, that's Cleve Hill. We can see three one. radio masts at the top of it. Oh, I see. Okay, Cleve Hill is... It's a fascinating here, because it's it feels like a bit of sort of Yorkshire moorland in the middle of the Cotswolds. It doesn't feel like Cotswold countryside, it's kind of it's got bracken and all that sort of stuff on yeah, there, and heather, it's very and know. heather, and it's very, very bare. Um, but going back to Holst briefly, he used to have a church position um, in Wick which is, as I say, is about 15 miles from here. And he would walk, you can see the valley, he would walk along just to yeah. the east of us, and he would put along. He used to take his trombone with him. And he would occasionally stop and practise his trombone as he was walking out in these wooded valleys. Out in these very, wooded very valleys, classic
2: sort of quite sparse hills and then wooded valleys here, line of poplars. But yeah, so he'd take his trombone and give give the give the countryside a blast. Of absolutely,
1: his, absolutely. Of the old bone. But talking about birds again in music, going back to the lark. One thing which, obviously, they have been depicted in music for years and years and years because it's a very obvious thing to do because they have their own natural song what is interesting is that some composers do a very they do a sort of generic stylized version of what birds roughly sound like So I think the Lark Ascending is a really good example of that whereas the French composer Oliver Messiaen Olivier Messiaen um, who lived throughout the majority of the 20th century he actually went out into the countryside and he was very precise about it and he recorded bird songs and then depicted them exactly as he heard them really? in his music. So oh, I'd
2: love to hear a bit more Messiaen. Can you can you recommend a piece? Then? Well, he
1: wrote this piece called Catalogue d'Oiseaux, Catalogue of Birds. Oh right. Okay. Um, and so you, again, it's this. It, it won't vacuum the countryside so much. It really is. It's exact, He was fascinated by the exact replication of bird songs. Gosh,
2: that's fascinating.
1: Because I want to. I want to ask you a little bit about thrushes, actually. From again, from the the non-expert view. Um, Should I have been excited when I saw a couple of thrush in our garden earlier this year? Yes. Or they, because they're quite rare these days, aren't they? They well, one of these birds that, in the right places, you can still see and hear
2: them in good numbers. And so people say, "I've got loads of song thrushes around me." Well, no problem. The same with sparrows. But actually, song thrushes have had a big decline. Possibly just lack of food. I mean, they eat snails and slugs, and there's plenty of those, but. When people are putting a, a lot of thousands of tons of slug pellets in their gardens, oh, I see. it's had a big impact. They're not as common as they were, so I always hello, I always celebrate seeing a song thrush. I always write it down in my nature diary.
1: Now, of course, the name again does what it says on the tin: song thrush. So yeah. why is it called the song thrush? Is there uh, something special about its well, song?
2: Which yes, really beautiful song. It repeats. Um, I've heard it described as snowy, 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 like that. And then it goes choop, choop, choop. So it kind of repeats phrases three times. It's not as lyrical as the blackbird. It's not as strong as the nightingale, but it's a really... I love hearing it. And they're just practising at the moment. We'll probably hear some on our way down here, actually, in these woods. If there's a bit of sun on the woodlands down here, we'll... But that's... And there's, um, well, there's a missile thrush which has strange song which always seems distant no matter how close you get to a missile thrush it's song is was always wistful and very melancholic and a kind of sad notes like sort of almost like it's missing something oh, often sings around rainstorms so it's got a it's alternative name is stormcock. yep uh, which was quite amusing because i miss <laughs> in the magazine i I accidentally wrote storm crow instead of Yay. storm cock. <laughs> and someone wrote in and said, woke BBC. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. It was a purely a mistake on my part. And I do make mistakes occasionally. Oh, God, so. yes. Uh, but, um, yeah, storm cock. I'm, I'm happy to say the word.
1: Talking of winter birds, I'm allowed to take us briefly outside the United Kingdom for a really good depiction of, yeah, of yeah, bird life. Yeah, yeah. Our friend Sibelius. Sibelius, yes. Finnish composer lived 1865 to ooh, 1956 I think it was he had a he had a good innings yeah um, he was famous for his depiction of swans um, and often these swans you can imagine them swimming in bitterly cold Finnish lakes yeah. sort of no one conjured up the sort of the bleak, chilly winter scenery like Zubay's did. And there's one famous piece of his called the Swan of Tuonola, which actually kind of, again, you can imagine this, it's actually based on a myth, but you can imagine this sort of lonely swan swimming around in a in a lake. And Because the Finnish lakes are extraordinary. They've gone for miles and the yeah. landscape is very flat. It's very different from here. But it, at the end of his fifth symphony, he was inspired by the sight of... number of swans i think it's about some 12 or something like that um taking off in flight and the final the end of his fifth symphony is this majestic sight of these swans all taking off Mm. and flying above him and again you don't have to know that this is what inspired him to enjoy the music it's in the most extraordinary piece of music anyway but when you hear that description or read that description in his diary and you picture it it gives it this another dimension especially if you've been to finland you can picture the landscape as well
2: well that's it's, it's really extraordinary. interesting i mean swans taking off is a, is an epic event what does that and, uh, you get their wings beating against the water and then the sort of slight creak of their the wind through the feathers oh it's fantastic
1: i used to be terrified of swans when i was little yeah because i used to go canoeing on a lake and used, used to be a very keen canoeer yeah or canoeist i guess um but i was for some reason i was always told beware the swans—they'll yeah. break your arm and all that that's nonsense. The classic.
2: I think it's a bit of a myth. I'm sure
1: one. it's a myth.
2: Break a man's arm? I think. I think it's just one of those things. I mean, they are strong birds, and you wouldn't want to get a peck from a swan.
1: No, but I okay. think a lot of the time they're just—unless they've got young. Yeah. I think they're just. They're, I think they're quite in kind of. In, they're sort of inquisitive, aren't they? They kind of want to come around and see what's going on. And they
2: do that funny sort of. That's it. Which uh, that wasn't quite right, was it? Which is a bit intimidating when you get a large bird coming but it, it's just telling you to back off. Yes.
1: Well, the most famous, of course, the most famous depiction of Swan in music is the French composer saint in his Carnival of the Animals. Oh, yes. Um, okay. And then what he does there quite cleverly is that um, the Swan, although the actual Carnival of the Animals is actually written for um, a small chamber group, the Swan itself is just written for cello, solo and piano and the cello line is da, 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 da. and that's the sort of classic it's the classic tale of the serenity on top and then the kind of paddling underneath because the piano line is this kind of much is this is kind of rippling sound underneath so the yeah. piano is effectively it's doing okay. this sort of it's that's the sort of the a the water rippling either side of the swan but it's also the kind of you imagine the swan's the little feet going yeah, um, yeah, so yeah, the cellist yeah. is the sort of the, the what you see, and the piano, is what's going on underneath, and it's this clever depiction. What we can see here in, in front of us, um, we're actually looking eastwards now, and we can see what's called Timbercombe Hill. Timbercombe Hill. So we're sort of on the eastern side of Leckhampton Hill now, and we're coming, as you say, we're coming downwards. Now, it was at this spot in... I think it must have been about May 2020, so fairly shortly into the first lockdown, um, where... At that time, there was so little traffic. Although we've got the A435 running here, you couldn't hear it at all. Everything was very, very silent. Um, And Kim, my wife, and I came up for an evening walk on a lovely evening, lovely May evening, and for the first time in my life, I think it was, on either side of the valley, I could hear two cuckoos. Wow. I don't think I've ever heard a cuckoo before. I'm pretty sure I hadn't, and it was magical. And I am imagining it, right? It would have been end of May, wouldn't it? That's the time to yeah, hear cuckoos. Yeah, yeah,
2: cuckoos, mid-April, sort of 20th of April to 20th of June. Right. You've got two months of cuckoos, and by the end of it, they're really sparse, hard to hear. But that's perfect. Yeah, May is...
1: It's such a short time for some birds. And there's a particular reason why, musical reason why I want to bring up cuckoos, because we were talking earlier on about bird song, which would have been common in the day, yeah. and less common these days. I say, I'm pretty sure that's the first time I ever heard a cuckoo. Cuckoos have been depicted. They've almost been the sort of default bird to go to for composers because they've yeah. got that dropping, yeah. which is a dropping major third. To put it in musical terms, is that what uh, it is? It's it's a dropping a major, major th- dropping major third. <laughs> um, the moment you <laughs> so hear it, you day. say cuckoo, cuckoo, cuckoo. Yeah. it's so distinctive. Yeah. Composers over the centuries have used it. Beethoven uses it in his Pastoral Symphony Number Six. So that's from the early nineteenth century. Sasson the same piece I mentioned earlier on, the Carnival of the Carnival, Animals, is yeah. the cuckoo in the heart of the woods, and then a classic British piece, Delius's, On Hearing the First Cuckoo in Spring, which is another one which I want you to play to your listeners yeah, if you gosh, would. Yeah,
2: gosh. Okay, I would like. To, I'd love to hear that. I'll be playing these on my way on my way home in and the I, car. But
1: uh... again. This is a bit of a cheat, because Delius, although, he, as I say, he came from Bradford, he moved around here briefly, but then he went to Norway and went to the States, as I was saying. Now, I think hearing the c- first cuckoo in spring, for him, was actually, I think he heard it in Norway, and that's what inspired him, rather than the English countryside. But, we can, as we we're we saying... Can forgive him. We, we can forgive him. Yeah. Cuckoos, I presume, in those days, would have been a pretty familiar sound.
2: Much, much more common. I mean, they were a common, very common sound in my childhood, in Somerset. And now, when I go back to my childhood landscapes very rarely hear them, very rarely hear them, which is a shame, but I live in
1: Wales, they're relatively common in the hills still, so... Well Delius was a classic, he was a brilliant scene painter in music, um, he's, a lot of his music actually sounds quite similar to, to Debussy, a French composer, who's a, a contemporary of his. Ooh. And a lot of people they they say about is that his music spends a lot of time going nowhere. <laughs> you won't hear any driven melodies or it doesn't reach a point, it just drifts. And I love that. So as well as the, the first he on hearing the first cuckoo in spring, which is just this lovely evocative image of going out into the countryside and hearing cuckoos. He also wrote a piece about, various pieces about drifting down on a, on a river in a sunny summer's evening. Oh, it's, it's delightful. Yes. It is really delightful. Sounds like one of our podcasts.
2: Dr- drifts, <laughs> drifts along. Apart from this one.
1: Um, but yeah, yeah. I've, I've, uh, so in that, a good way. He, he was an interesting character because he was actually of German stock. Um, Delius, the name yeah. Delius. Doesn't, and this is the thing, Holston Delius.
2: You know, we do judge people by their names and so yeah? I wouldn't have... Naturally, gone to them as British composers who who evoked the British countryside. Well, that's for, it. But he's, you've, he's, you've you've
1: educated me properly today, Jeremy. He's the, he's the least British of British composers, and yet he he managed to conjure up the image of the British countryside so well. I've been I've been standing on on a on a pile of horse. Uh, done oh while, no, while I've you're okay. <laughs> yes, I'm fine. I'll survive.
2: It's it's about the four thousandth time I've done that. Um, You mentioned to me another composer, if we could go on to... Arnold uh, Bax. And and there's another name, B-A-X, Bax. I've never heard of Arnold Bax,
1: and you uh, invited me to listen to uh, November Woods. It's November Woods. If I were to choose, and I know this is is my choice, it's not what other people would choose, but if I had to choose one piece which, for me, sums up the British countryside, it would be Bax's November Woods. As a way of a side, I'm just going to quickly mention another piece of him, which is which is really famous, which is Tintagel. Oh,
2: he wrote that. He
1: wrote yeah, Tintagel, Akeem. which is a depiction of the famous Arthurian fort in Cornwall, and he's a lovely depiction of actually it's the sun glistening off the sea Ooh. round the fort of Tintagel. If you've been there, you'll be yes, able to yeah, picture absolutely. the image, sort of on a little island. Exactly, and you and it's a, again you makes you realise how clever these composers are. You can the moment you hear it, you can imagine the sea round this this very distinctive fort, but that's one piece. He, um, November Woods is... It, it's... it's. Um, he... Bax was a naughty boy. Oh, was he? He spent a lot of his time. He had a lot of affairs. Mm, um, okay. um, again, he's another composer who explored a lot of the countryside. But this is closer to home. This is based in Hertfordshire. And he was having an affair with... Was he, was he going off to see his mistresses? Yeah. On long walks to yeah, see them. Exactly. <laughs> really? And this one pretty much depicts this, one of that those occasions. He has... Um, he was having a <laughs> he's having a, a, an affair with a pianist called Harriet Cohen at the time. Um, and this piece of music depicts them going out for a walk in the... Although it's called November Woods, apparently it depicts a, a, an episode which happened in o- October, late October. And they're walking through the woods, and you can hear a storm breaks.
2: Yes, I, def- I was going to say, I
1: thought it was a, a gale in a woodland. It is. And I think it is... For me, That's that is amazing. what the British countryside is about. It's not... Although today is lovely, we've got the beautiful countryside. Today is a still day. I love that thing of just walking through really quite grim Mm. autumn weather, Um, and then within it, and that's what's going on there. And so they shelter in the woods, and eventually they see their hotel, and they make their way out of the woods, and they go to the hotel and do what couples do in hotels at the end. But yes, (laughs) but it is just the most fantastic depiction of of what the English countryside is about. And the moment you hear it, you think, I, I, I know that. I completely...
2: Well, I knew it was called November Woods, so I was thinking of woodlands. But, of course, there is that gale in the middle, or storm in the middle, and it was absolutely... I mean, the first thing I was going to say was, is it about a storm in the woods? And And it is. So clever old Bax I didn't know I didn't
1: know that piece the person who actually alerted me to that piece I didn't know it before was Andrew Marr the journalist oh really yeah we did a piece for BBC Music Mag many years ago where we were asking people what's your ideal piece of British music and Andrew Marr knows his classical music he said I want to go for Bax's November Woods really and he described it actually pretty much in the way that I've just described it, and he said it, it means a lot to and him. You
2: and you didn't know it before, really? Or you, I no, mean, Bax, Bax
1: I, I, I love Bax. but I've known a little bit of Bax. He's, I love his music. It's, he writes um, some of his chamber music for string quartet, etc. It's just glorious. Um, he also spent time in Ireland, and he builds a lot of, kind of Irish-sounding folk music into some of his music. Beautiful stuff. But, yeah, again, he was the same generation, probably a little bit later than Vaughan Williams oh. and Holst, I think. Um, And it's just really, really evocative stuff. Wonderful. Gosh, what an
2: eye-opening, ear-opening podcast. Uh, Thank you so much, Jeremy. I really, I can't wait to get back onto the sort of, onto my music streaming services. Others are available. And listen to some of these. So that was an absolutely lovely, a divine day in the Cotswolds with Jeremy Pound of BBC Music Magazine. And all of Jeremy's suggestions... All the wonderful choices he made of music that evokes the British countryside and beyond can be found on our Spotify playlist. So if you search for BBC Countryfile magazine on Spotify, you can find all those pieces and enjoy them at your leisure. And let us know what you think and tell us about the music you enjoy. You can contact me, Fergus Collins. My email address is editor at countryfile.com. Now, before further ado, I'm delighted to say... That Jeremy, who hosted me so beautifully up in the Cotswolds, is joining us in the virtual podcast studio. Jeremy, hello and thank you. Hello. Good to see you. And we've also got to listeners, no doubt, a huge delight, Hannah and Jack, our regular podcasters. Love to see you both as well. Hello. Hello. Yeah, Jeremy, it's, but I didn't ask you about music beyond classical that you, A, that you love and listen to, but also that perhaps also evokes the countryside. Have you ever...
1: Well, I do listen to loads of stuff beyond classical. Um, I, I, know, I know quite a few people in the classical music world who only ever listen to classical, but I kind of like to share the love around. Nothing that really kind of evokes the countryside. When I'm working, of all things, I like to listen to Deep Purple which you might think is not the easiest thing to work to, but for some reason I find it very easy to, to get on with. Um, but apart from that, yes, I'll, I'll listen to sort of Metallica and then anything, I'm a bit of a sort of 80s '80s kid. I like to listen to all the big hits from the 80s, that sort of thing, um, plus jazz as well and world music. So I'm broad church, really.
2: No stone is left unturned, or no rolling stone. No, no, no rolling stone left is left, left unturned. unturned.
1: Yes, no stone roses are left unturned. <laughs> <laughs> that's,
2: that's good work there. Um, And and talking about sort of music and distractions, we touched on it. We didn't record it in the podcast, but people walking around the countryside with earphones in and not taking in the sounds. Obviously, we've talked about music that evokes the countryside, but it's the sort of thing you'd listen to back in your armchair rather than when you're out. How do you feel about people who sort of block out the natural world?
1: I can't believe they do that. I would never, ever listen to music while out and about. I, I love the sounds of the countryside going up to the top of the hill. And just hearing the various bird calls um, and hearing... Actually, it's also just the more sort of organic sounds, like kind of wind and things like that. Beautiful sounds. It doesn't just have to be bird calls or animal sounds. I, I guess if you're walking through a townscape or something like that, I can see why you'd do it then. But if you're out in the countryside, why why do that? The, the sounds are beautiful enough.
2: Yeah, I think I agree with you. I think I agree. I, I'd miss even the gentle sweeping melodies of the M5 <laughs> from the top of this. <laughs> Hannah and Jack, we talked. Obviously, we're talking about here about music that we love that evokes big skies and big landscapes. Is there a piece of music that might sort of bring that to you?
3: I do a rather embarrassing thing every time I come home on the train. Um, So between Bristol and Swansea, um, when I go past Port Talbot and you sort of see the hills for the first time, like here are the hills, here are the valleys, the landscape. We're in Wales. I always listen to and It's usually um Morris Norpheus Choir performing. And I just make myself cry because I'm home. And it sounds like home and it's all the stuff, it's all the stereotypes, but it's gorgeous. Is
2: that a male voice choir? Yes. Yeah, okay. So that's that's the sound of I, I think yes, it's sort of it, it when I hear one of those, I immediately think of those steep sided valleys and terraces of of industrial towns, that sort of thing. What's that f- Welsh word for longing for home?
3: Hiraeth. So it's, it's sort of, it's a bit like nostalgia. So it's a longing for something that sort of uh, isn't there to begin with. I don't know, it's like, it's not necessarily homesickness. It's tied up in all the sorts of different history and um, evocations of the past. So it's not directly translatable into English, but it's that kind of draw
2: and that drag. Well, Jack, how about you? Any longing
0: and belonging? Well, I, I was going to make a confession. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I thought we were going to do that off, off-record.
0: <laughs> I'm, I'm prepared to be booted out of the meeting, but I am one of those people that may listen to music when I'm out and about. Oh, Jack. Well, tell us why. I don't do it all the time, but for places that are like local to me, sometimes I'm walking the same place a couple times quite regularly that to my untrained bird ears and stuff like that, that if I'm going in two days in a row, the second day, the stuff I hear is probably going to be similar to what I've heard the day before. And I think where I have quite a creative mind, I've, there's something about me that if I'm somewhere and I've got a bit of music playing, I like quite sort of cinematic orchestrated or stuff that's made for film because I think they're, Trying to portray an image via the music, but I think if you, if I, when I'm listening to that in a place, I kind of link it to that place, I kind of experience that oh, place wow, differently. Okay. And then later on, if I'm home and I'm listening to that piece again, I kind of then get reminded of where
1: I was and what I experienced in that place. When I was studying for finals many, many years ago. I played the same piece of music again and again and again when I was learning a particular text, because I used to do that thing of associating what I was learning with the music. And it does work. It's funny. So if I was reading, because I I studied classics, so if I was reading, say, some Virgil, I'd play the same piece of music the whole time when I was studying Virgil. And the combination of the music... And the words would ingrain themselves just like the same way as it playing that music brings out that landscape for you. It's that sort of association that music can have in all sorts of different ways.
2: Jack, you put up a very good defense for playing music while outside. It reminded me of similar associations of when I was little. uh, I had, for for various reasons, had to drive up and down. Well, my parents would drive up and down to London every week between where my mum worked and where my dad worked. So every weekend we'd go back across. The A three o three, the M three, and the A three o three, which goes across Salisbury Plain, epic big landscape of ancient sort of sites and quite bleak big skies, Stonehenge that sort of thing. And they'd always play um, Vaughan Williams variations on the theme by Thomas Tallis. Is that is that what it's called? Yeah, Fantasia, um, Fantasia, Fantasia on the theme f-
3: by
1: Thomas Tallis. Yes. Yeah,
2: that's it, and, and an amazing piece of music, which totally for me now. Whenever I hear it, I'm instantly transported into the back of the family Chrysler <laughs> and looking out the window at Salisbury Plain. And it's it's so deep that I, I when I went back there to some of those sites, I actually played the music. So yes, Jack, your your defence was a valid one in this court of music
1: interestingly we went very close to the place where the fantasia on the theme of thomas Tallis was premiered because it was actually first performed in gloucester cathedral really so just mm. around the corner from where we did our little walk um, and that was back in 1910 i think it was oh my goodness so that's another another gloucestershire piece
2: jeremy you are such a fount of knowledge and i think our listeners will really appreciate the detail and <laughs> the passion that you've brought to our podcast which um I'd like to say we have every week, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> but thank you indeed. And before you go, uh, we've got a couple of regular things that we'd like, to, um, like you to be part of. Perhaps, um, well, we've talked a lot about sounds that we've enjoyed that evoke the landscape, but we've got a Sound of the Week this week, haven't we? Looking at Hannah Tribe.
3: We do, we do have a Sound of the Week. Here it is.
2: that's intriguing what what's unwrap it please
3: <laughs> i was talking about um sounds evoking space i don't think anything evokes the sound of a winter's night like the cry of a fox
2: how did you capture that then were, were, were well, did you now late at night
3: no coming, so coming back from the park i was, was actually it? just going to bed and was brushing my teeth and the bathroom window was open and i heard a tawny owl and i was like this will be great record the tawny owl. Of course, by the time I got my recorder out, they'd gone. This doesn't often happen, but I'll put my recorder out and I'll be like, oh it's quiet, I think happens. And the fox just went, just went for it. I hadn't heard the fox beforehand. It was completely spontaneous and amazing. And what I really liked about this was that it's not just the cry, but they also do this kind of adorable little like chattering sound to one another. It's like a little cackling, crackling kind of chat that is lovely and it really gave a sense of sort of play and fun and they were like having a nice time out there in the frost
2: i need to brush up my fox knowledge but is i is it sort of like a call for is it the vixen calling from the hills saying it's time to
3: mate uh, i think so yes yeah. it sounds to me a bit like it might be a, a vixen talking to baby ones or to another vixen or to a dog like that chat between the two i don't think it was just one on its own
2: right okay gosh interesting well please listeners do send in more thoughts because that's an eerie eerie sound and really yeah. lovely to get a sound of mammals rather than just the birds that we often get
3: it's like um absolute bbc sound effect for country house at night time
2: yeah, that's right, that's right. Burglars creeping around yeah. or something's poachers in the woods. Um, we love sounds, uh, getting these sounds. Um, please, listeners, do send in anything you've recorded out in the wild. So again, my email address, editor at countryfile.com, and we will play it within the podcast if we can. But, Jeremy, you can't escape yet. I know you You've probably thought you can get out the door, but we've also got... Well, Jack's got the podcast postbag. Jack, what have we have we got something for Jeremy this week?
0: Yeah, I've I've shared the postbag this week, and uh, Jeremy does have a little review. A review.
1: Yes, I've got a I've got a review to to read you here. It's an interesting one. It says it's four stars, and it says interesting podcast with change of focus seasonally. However, I must insist on more Joel Satgav and fat golden eagles. Disappointingly, he spells fat with an F-A-T rather than P-H-A-T, but
2: <laughs> just had the I have no it, idea
1: so. what that's about. Can you explain it to me?
2: Right. Well, I'll unpick that. This is a bit cryptic. Thank you, uh, reviewer. It's uh, four stars. Delightful. Uh, Joel and Gav, known as SatGav, are two of my friends. Um Joel is a historian and Gav a musician uh, who loves fly fishing and they took me to the farest north of Scotland in two episodes last year, 108, 115, where we did a bit of fishing on a lock and we climbed Sullivan, at one of the peaks there, which was just a, a brilliant adventure and I'm delighted that, that this reviewer has enjoyed it because I'm going back with them. This in 2022 to do a bit more of that and we may do some more recording primarily to find those fat golden eagles because we didn't see any golden eagles this time i'd I'd settle for a thin one (laughs) even a scrawny (laughs) one yeah yeah just just any old eagle will do but i'm really hopeful to go up for a full week and and do a bit of exploring it is magical up there and perhaps jeremy i might ask you for some musical tips for when i go
1: that's easy you want to take Mendelssohn's Scottish Symphony with you when you go. <laughs> Fantastic.
2: How brilliant. I would just like to thank you for that. But also, again, a, a really memorable day. And I think it's a, it's a lovely podcast. And I'm sure many people enjoy it. And thank you, Hannah and Jack, for your ever fabulous input. And I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. Join us again next week. And thank you so very much for listening. Goodbye for now.